All right, she walked into my office with a sob story a mile long and gams that went from here to Timbuktu. What's a gam? Son, one day you'll find out. One day you'll know. Do you actually not know what gams are? Daddy, why do you use that word? Why, why, why are you always talking about Auntie Linda's gams? Uh, you know what gams are? I know what a gam is. You yeah. know what gams are? I don't know. Where the, I don't know the etymology. I've never been able to locate it myself. She said she had a brother in Pittsburgh, but I knew she was lying. I was calling on old money. I knew it. They knew it. Everybody knew it. The butler knew it. Hello, hello. But he didn't care. I have some notes here. Oh, you have notes. Everybody, stop what they're doing. Lucas has notes. Welcome back, Arts Fusenics, to uh, what is now the fifth episode of the Arts Fuse podcast. I'm not really sure what people think of the name Arts Fusenics, because I like it. I don't know if that means that you are like a... It's a member of a secret cult, Do you, Are you refusing the Arts Fuse, though? Because... Uh, Arts Fuse Nick. No, 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 a Nick. No, but a Refuse Nick. You're not a refuse. You're a refuse. Nick is something else. Yeah, you're well, not that's a refuse. Nick. You're a refuse. Nick to to like low quality arts criticism. You are refusing low quality arts criticism, and you are patronizing high quality arts criticism. So arts fuse. Nick carries with it the positivity of a beat. Nick, right? Which we all think is positive. I certainly do. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a huge fan of the beats because I'm not 17, but, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think beatniks are positive, personally. Donovan says they're out to make it rich, but I don't know if I totally believe him. Uh, it's also no longer <laughs> the season of The Witch, so... Not not, not remotely. Not even remotely. We're at least 24 hours past the season of The Witch. <laughs> We've been gone for a while, though. We apologize for that. We're going to get more consistent with, uh, with these releases. We had a good run there for a while. We did a nice job. I was thinking I'd call this one, This is Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Oh, because <laughs> if you if if you don't know by now, Matt and I are pissed. Oh, I'm I have the rage of a thousand suns. If you haven't heard, the greatest streaming service on the planet Earth is is not going to be more anymore. Its swan song has been sung. And well, yeah, we're we're in the midst of its swan song. I think. Yeah, it yeah. will be dead November 29th. We're talking about Filmstruck, the streaming service that was a teaming up between Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection where you could go for a very, very modest fee and stream just about any one of a billion great movies mm-hmm. that you ever wanted to stream in your all life. Over the, from all over the world, from all over different eras, Hollywood, Bollywood, independent cinema, lost classics, silent stuff, stuff from Europe and Russia and Japan and Africa and uh, and 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 mo- Hollywood movies. I mean, things that we all loved anyway. Casablanca and Citizen Kane and Psycho and all these wonderful movies that any film lover has either already loved or is about to love if they just sit down and watch them. Now, two years ago, you interviewed Peter Becker, mm-hmm. the president of the Criterion mm-hmm. for the Arts Fuse. You can mm-hmm. go back and find Matt's piece on that back in the day, and. He seemed pretty psyched about this little endeavor, mm-hmm. and it wasn't supposed to replace, you know, what we all know and love about the Criterion, which is, you know, putting out this great little DVD with a with a bunch of back uh, extra features and the highest quality version that you can possibly get, lost uh, treasures, re-releases of classics. Contemporary films they decided to put out in the best available edition and put the stamp of approval on. Um, it taught me everything about movies, honestly. I just started hearing about foreign directors years ago, and I was like, oh, they're all released by Criterion. I should check this out. And it's just a bonanza. I mean, Fellini and Kurosawa and Bunuel and, um, you know, every, I don't know, Truffaut, Godard, every film director you've ever heard of and ever been interested in has been given its proper place now. And it's just a beautiful thing. And then Filmstruck premieres two years ago, and it's fantastic. It's basically Netflix, only for the gl- the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, instead of having to rifle through all that shit, you you can you can pick something that you have no idea what it is, and you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen probably a handful. I've been watching the Criterion movies for 
at least a decade now, if not more, like consistently. And I've seen maybe a handful of bad well, ones. Aren't you fucking cool? I know. I'm really, really, really fucking cool, by the way, everybody. Um, that's why you're listening to this podcast, because you're like, what are the cool people doing? Um, but no, I'm just saying I've been, I've hundreds of these movies I've seen and I've very rarely ever seen a clunker. There's been maybe three or four or something that I wasn't into, but I've seen, I've learned something from each movie. I've had my mind blown, you know, laughed, cried, just had amazing times in the movies. And it was just to, to, to be able to stream it at will from my living room, everything, thousands of movies curated lovingly and sensitively by the people who run it and interviews with people about the movies that they loved and little featurettes. I mean, you couldn't ask for more. There's a little YouTube video of Zizek in a video store. I think the Criterion actually did this. Yeah, in the people. in the closet yeah. that they have in New yeah. York, where it's just like all the the movies that they put. And out. he picks like five movies or whatever it is, and he says, you know, it's it's so much <laughs> better just to just even watch the special features. Who gives a fuck <laughs> about the movie? You know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, this I claim. And sometimes I watch. He always sniffles. I'm not sure exactly why. I don't think he has a coke problem. He has like a perpetual head cold. No, they, they they know what he sounds like. They don't have to explain the sniffle. Do you all? Do you all know? If you don't, then if you don't, you should check it out. He's a really poly Slovenian who is a head full of Marxism and revolution, and he's constantly sniffling. (laughs) (laughs) And he's in the Criterion thing, and he's like, yes, I don't even watch the film after all. He's like a film theorist, too. I don't even watch the films. I just, I I, I look at the bonus features in the commentary. It's more fun than the film. He's got this great uh, comment where the the documentary about making Fitzcarraldo Mm -hmm. is better than Fitzcarraldo, which is is absolutely true. 100% accurate. To be perfectly honest. (laughs) There's more drama and intensity between Klaus and Herzog just going at it than than you could ever get from that. Absolutely. Pulling guns on each other and Werner Herzog's hilarious musings on the nature of the jungle. Which one day I'm I surrounded I by death. Yeah, everyone <laughs> says the it. jungle is, is beautiful, it. but all I see is fornication and asphyxiation. He's like, the trees are in misery. <laughs> the birds don't sing, they just scream in pain. <laughs> this is a place where I've seen this video a bunch, a bunch of times. You gotta look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. This is a place where God, if he exists, created out of pure spite. <laughs> and then at the very end of the whole thing, he goes, Don't get me wrong. I don't hate the jungle. I feel like I Herzog it. would say that about like an Applebee's, too. Though. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's, he doesn't really discriminate this guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, we definitely need to get Herzog and an Applebee's in like, in like Kansas City or like in Wyoming somewhere and just be like, these corn fribbles are apocalyptically miserable. Eating good in the neighborhood of hell. <laughs> so the reason why Filmstruck doesn't exist anymore, and or I, I, there's one month left, but you can't sign. Ah, up for well, yeah, it you can't like sign. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 gone on the 29th of November. But here's what happened. So we live we live in a world where uh, big corporations like to turn into bigger corporations, mm-hmm. and two of the biggest ones. AT&T and Time Warner Mm -hmm. said, well, we're going to become one company now, too. The merger. And Time Warner or Warner Inc. or whatever the fuck they call themselves now said, you know what? We don't really want to continue this Filmstruck thing. Right. What does it cost the consumer? Like $11 a month? I think it's $10.99 a month. Yeah. So for $11, there's a very dedicated following. And the biggest companies in the world decide to become an even bigger company in the world and say, you know what, we don't really want to do this one anymore because we're just going to, the, the language they use is just like pure corporate fuckery, which is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, but in your piece, Matt, on the Arts Views, when you write it, you say it's censorship through market logic rather than by government decree, mm-hmm. which still amounts to the same thing, right. which is more or less true. And, you know, nobody's shocked by this because we know that that's exactly what the market does is that it doesn't give you options. It tells you what the options are. Right. And Which is so ironic if you think about it because all the like f- disciples of free market ideology in the 90s were all saying, no, markets are what adjusts to what every consumer wants, right? Because there's going to be somebody who wants to buy it, so the market will adjust and offer it. So you will never lack for something amazing to see because the markets will provide all the stuff you want because you'll be buying it. And then it's like, wait a minute, um, there's lots of people I have yet to see any hard data, and I bring this up in the article, that says that Filmstruck wasn't making its papes. That, I mean, there were lots of people that responded to it on social media. It was very popular. It was growing. The the um, audience was growing month by month. They they still had everything ready for the next few months worth of curation, which is what uh, some people have commented on. So it's not like Filmstruck was, was limping along. Filmstruck had a really solid, passionate audience. There's articles popping up everywhere about how people are sad that it's going, 
Um, and so it's not like, and so what happened was Time uh, Turner Media is the name of this new merger um, that said they wanted to, quote, streamline their operation. And they wrote a memo, and it said that Turner Media is, quote, incredibly proud of the, quote, creativity and innovations that Filmstruck produced, which is, like, very nice of them to say. And then it has a, quote, very loyal fan base. So even then in the memo, they say that there was a lot of people that were interested in this, but called it, quote, ultimately a niche market. So what? So what, says Hansen. So what, says the Arts Fuse. Right? Niche market? What the hell is that? Niche market? I mean, and this is something I I mentioned in the article I think is true and I think worth discussing. Like, niche markets are only niche markets until they become major markets. How many things are now household names that were once considered, you know, um, the the province of of a a chosen few? Hip-hop. Hip-hop's global now. Everywhere in the world, people are listening to it. It's making ungodly amounts of money. There's a million rappers. There's a million mixtapes. And for quite some time, a decade and a half, let's say, hip-hop was absolutely a niche market. A niche market. Niche, niche. Who cares? But it was literally something that only a certain amount of people listened to. And now it's global. And then if you want to talk about film, which is to, to reflect even more directly on Filmstruck, um, I mentioned that in the piece that Quentin Tarantino was a perfect example of a niche market that blew up huge. I, I I like the idea that yeah, Tarantino was was considered sort of an art house kind of guy. A hundred percent. But at first, at least you know. But he also had some mainstream success very early on with yeah. his um with the scripts winning best script for Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction got best original screenplay. Yeah. Well, he had better, he, well. So that's the thing is that and then everybody was talking about Pulp Fiction being amazing, which of course I love that movie. I think it's a great movie. Um, but all of that is is a is a potpourri of the influences. It's got new wave stuff. It's got right. noir stuff. And there's, so it's the idea of right. all these films that he's taking from from the absolute pulp, from black exploitation, from the grittiest you know right. grindhouse type cinema right. to the Kurosawas and the Fellinis and the Godards and, and the Godards and all that. Yeah, yeah. So this is a person who started off openly saying i'm into all those movies nobody else ever watches anymore puts them all together with his own style and then what do you know it becomes a huge mainstream sensation and so it's like that was a niche market until suddenly everybody now knows who quentin tarantino is and that is only just one person obviously there's lots of other people you could apply that to you could talk about that with david lynch was a niche market for a really long time they gave him a tv show yeah, and then they gave him a TV What kind show. of madman decided yeah, to like right. David Lynch? How high was ABC? I think it was. How high was ABC when they were like, let's give David Lynch a TV show? Uh, and even then, he was pissed off because it tried. they tried to make him uh, uh, correspond to mainstream TV plot requirements. Because eventually they were like, you got to tell us who killed Laura Palmer. You know, The right. Coen brothers were niche for quite some time until they broke through to the mainstream. And so things so part of my argument here is that when they talk about niche marketing, it's such a like self-perpetuating bullshit argument. Niche is niche until it becomes something a lot of people get into. And even if something stays niche, it shouldn't fucking matter because mm-hmm. here's here, here's this one number that I want to throw out to you guys. So the reason why the thing that costs, you know, any ordinary person eleven dollars a month right. to get a, a fantastic collection of cinema is owned by a company who has in 2017, $31.27 billion in revenue. 31.27. That's billion with a B, Lucas? That's billion with, with a B. Wow. $31 billion. That's a million million dollars. However many millions that is. And and so if, if the $31 billion company can't provide for a niche market's desires, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of hope for right. capitalism. Yeah, that's a perfect example of like, well, sorry, guys, we just don't really feel like uh, dealing with this. Uh, you know, it's, it's nerd, too much nerd. I don't know. And then, which I thought was also funny, it said that it, would, it vaguely promised to respect, quote, key learnings from Filmstruck. Learnings is a word that Matt has some trouble with. I have a lot of issues with the term learnings. I have a lot of issues with it, too. I, I, I stumble across it in, in, in things that I read for my um, nonprofit regular nine-to-five job. I, don't, I honestly don't quite know. Usually what it a process through which, you know, you're going to spend a lot of money evaluating and doing some kind of research that is supposed to do good for the world. And then you write a paper about it and you call the paper uh, evidence of your learnings. Okay. And everybody gets a sticker. Yeah. And right. a cupcake. Right. And uh, sometimes an extra packet of goldfish at snack Ooh. time. And then you get fired 
when your company merges with another one. Yeah. So and you become so much redundancy. The only thing I could think of when I heard learnings was Borat. Yeah, well, see, now you're just being offensive to Kazakhs. Co- well, I, <laughs> I, I want to say that I really deeply love my Kazakh brothers and sisters. Uh, but Borat, the character, cultural learnings, right? Even that was supposed to be a joke about well, that's how he talks. So they're talking like Borat. And then they say they're going to redirect this investment back into our collective portfolios. They're not talking about money. They're talking about the learnings. Right. Richard Brody in The New Yorker said, The conspicuously commercial waiting room to the classic cinema library suggests the culture class at the heart of the enterprise, the one that arises from its odd original fusion of Criterion with TCM, which was then a part of Time Warner, and which foreshadowed its doom. That air of doom arises from more than the inherent conflicts of the high culture outpost and the mass market colossus. It's born of another conflict between the ownership of physical media and the mere purchase of access to data between the permanent and the revocable, between the one-time purchase and the monthly subscription forever. Whatever's worth revisiting after the years is worth owning, whether in physical media or at least a digital file. Now, I agree with that, but I also disagree with that. Mm. If it's, if it, I don't think that because something has value makes it worth owning. I think the, the, the streaming model that you can have infinite access to all the data that you want is the model and you know the actual physical dvds it's nice to have a little piece of art if you want to and you know have a little bit of nostalgia and you know i still buy books like an idiot but i can't help myself but what's interesting here is that what i imagine the big conglomerate that that owns all this this data will just chop it up and then attach it to their other mainstream colossus media uh, uh distributors the the conglomerate can't solve the issue between the Criterion and TCM issue that Brody seems to exist, which is the conflicts between the high culture outpost and the mass market colossus. Mm-hmm. The only thing they could do is put all of the Criterion on one streaming service somewhere and then, you know, either as like a, a, a corner of one of their big things or as its own existing thing. So they're just going to come right back to the idea that they actually have to have put this stuff on the internet because there is a market for it. Right. And, and, and now the only thing that's going to happen is, is that the access to that is going to be owned by even smaller and smaller groups of people. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying you can have Criterion and TCM, instead it'll be like you can have Warner Brothers movies for ten ninety nine a month, and then you can have Paramount movies for ten ninety nine a month, or you can have whatever. Yeah, it'll be like one thing. I don't know if who owns Hulu or if Hulu's its own thing or whatever, but it would be like. Like the way Hulu makes you pay for HBO or Showtime or Stars right, or whatever it right, is. Right. So they'll just add it on to one of the big media colossus things that already exists. So they're probably going to get our money eventually. <laughs> but this is this is what I really want to, to drive home. Yeah. I subscribed to, to Filmstruck because I was an idiot. I wanted it to exist. I felt like it was the kind of thing that should. And for the people that aren't out there, you know, pirating stuff then this was a good way to say, cancel your cable subscription. That's a monopoly too. And $11 a month, and you can watch great art all the time. But really, we shouldn't even be paying for Filmstruck. We should just be pirating everything. Mm -hmm. Problem is, though, all the people who do make them need to get paid for it. Yeah, that's why we need a welfare state. (laughs) <laughs> no, but I mean, even then, we need to be paid. They need to be paid for the book they write or the movie. Oh, they write. I mean, yeah, sure, but like, I'm I'm okay with that. Yeah, they can they can get paid for their time and labor, but then once it's out there, it's out there. Well, who's going to pay them? I mean, like, unless you have a studio that just buys the movies from people and then just freely disseminates them, like the, the government could do it. The, I guess the like pe- they did the in people's the people's in the Ministry of Cinema. Yeah, right. <laughs> and propaganda. Yeah, run by Hanson and Spiro, baby. Hell yeah. Yeah, but so there's that sense of like. Well, even well, even with the streaming is a good point in the sense of like how people are pirating things. But the thing is, is that even if people are pir, I remember I was pirating stuff for a while, and then I was like, oh my god, like no, streaming became cheap. Yeah, you didn't need to pirate anymore because mm-hmm. you know for a few bucks you could get what you you know. Where I, where, yeah, well, where I was going with it was just that it was like, oh my god, I'd love to go see some to find something that isn't commercially available. Uh, like the Magnificent Ambersons, for example. I looked for all high and low for that, for a, for a disc of it. I get it from the library. I'd pay 15 bucks to see that movie. Orson Welles' follow-up to Citizen Kane, right, which, which he himself said was the greatest movie he'd ever made. I, I'll pay 15 bucks for that. Couldn't find it commercially. I could find a used copy for like $70 or something on some marketplace. So I streamed it. 
And it was like, okay, well, I mean, I can't buy this commercially, so I'll just pirate it then. And now Criterion's putting it out. Now, that's coming out in, a, in about a month or so on disc. The Criterion will be releasing the DVD, which is awesome. But my point is, is that to take that and apply that to movies across the board, right, that aren't commercially available elsewhere, that's where the curation comes in. That's why Filmstruck is so precious, because it's actually curated. That there's actually people saying, okay, no, 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 we got to have, you know, um, the Magnificent Ambersons, we got to have um, uh, The Other Side of the Wind was a big one, just for Wells. That's just Orson Wells, let alone all the lost films of these amazing directors, you know, that if if you know a little bit about the, the director, you would be really excited to see because you'd be like, oh, my God, I didn't know there was a lost whatever film. And so it's curated so you can actually have like people who are presenting that to you and offering you a, a series and a selection of stuff that otherwise would just be consigned to oblivion. And tell me that's not valuable. Ten ninety nine a month is a steal for that. Even in the interview that you did with Becker originally, he talks about how the emergence of even more repertoire theaters is indicative of the fact that people do value this stuff. Absolutely. And they even value their theaters. Oh, May, yeah. You know, for, for whatever reason. I mean, if you want to see a movie, you want to see it on a theater, if, if at all possible. You know, I mean, a TV laptop, that's fine. But if you and if you can, you want to see it on a big theater. It's the idea would. of the curation, too. You know, the, the, the culmination of, of the critics and uh, the history and the scholars and oh, yeah. the public, everybody coming together to, to witness something. Mm. And, yeah, I think... We're all very alienated, and we're mostly just watching this stuff our own, in our own little loneliness pods anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so we right. probably need to go to the repertory theaters a little bit more yeah. so they don't disappear too. Right. But it's, it's a sad thing that we can't have nice things. And, yeah. and the reason we can't have nice things is because uh, some fat cats decided Exactly. That we can't have nice things. It's literally that. That they can't be bothered right. to try to give us nice things. I just wrote a piece about Brian Phillips' collection of essays, and he used to write for Grantland. I don't know if you know Grantland. I do, yeah. Yeah. So it was probably the best place to read about sports writing. They were dedicated to uh, high-quality, long-form journalism. Right. So obviously they couldn't s- exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When ESPN, their parent company, shut it down, they said, we can't really commit to the excellence anymore. Yeah. It was too good. It was too good, and people liked it too much yep. for ESPN, who's now owned by Disney, I think. Okay. Uh, and don't tell me ESPN's begging door to door. ESPN has an unbelievable amount of money. No, actually they don't because oh. nobody um nobody pays for cable anymore. Oh, interesting. So their ad revenue goes down. I think ESPN. I don't know if they're still fucked, but they were fucked for a long time. Interesting. And so that's one of the reasons. So again, you know, we we decided that we wanted something like Grantland, and we were willing to to go to it, you know, our, ourselves. Mm-hmm. But because we don't own it, because the people that actually produce it don't own it, the people that actually do own it can't be bothered with it. They just see it as a, a, a set of numbers on a ledger. Mm-hmm. And if those numbers have a parenthesis around them or if they're red instead of black, then they don't care what it is. Mm-hmm. This, yeah. is, this, is, this is neoliberalism par excellence. It really is. The market tells you what's necessary. We don't determine the market even. We, like our, our consumer activities do not amount to shit. Right. It's not that you get to find the thing you want and you'll just pay the guy to give it to you. It's that we'll give you the options of the stuff for you to want. We've been writing about this stuff on The Fuse, too, now more consistently lately than, than before. Right. Uh, our editor, Bill Marks, this is one of his constant access to grind, is the fact that you know things like Wells Fargo is the largest patron mm-hmm. of, of theater mm-hmm. in, in, in the U.S. If that's the case, then theater doesn't exist as far as I'm concerned. Or, you know, if, if it continues on that way. Mm-hmm. And if if you continue to have a, a, a merging of far-right governments with the giant corporations, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that are actually producing and putting on our theater, then voila, we've done it, everybody. We've mm-hmm. given ourselves, you know, the Fourth Reich. And call well, me an alarmist, but, like, still. Well, like, that's, I mean, media conglomeration is in its... In it, that's why I was saying it's censorship through market logic rather than do- government decree. But, Which is what the left has always been saying about the fact that, you know... Uh, right, but but how far away is government decree censorship when the market's already doing it for you, right? And then if somebody well, they says... they don't have to. Right. That's, that's, the, that's yeah. the beauty of capitalism, right. is that the government doesn't have to do it. Right. Like like in, um, in Ireland, in the 50s, they didn't need to have the government say, uh, no, you can't read James Joyce. The Catholics, the priests, the clergy made everybody feel real, like you know, scared of each other. Mm-hmm. And so you just ratted on each other. It was done by, by the populace. Right. The people they internalized said, the oppression. The, the, the people said, this is pornography. This is obscenity. This is blasphemy. And then it went, goes on the list. It wasn't the government. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't need the government to do that. Mm-hmm. We do it to ourselves. 
And that's also what I was saying, too, in the piece about a corporation, this is me writing it, but a corporation brusquely shoving all that celluloid off the platform, not only does a disservice to the art and the artist who created it, it displays, this is kind of what you were just saying, displays a willfully myopic neglect of imaginative possibility. A willfully myopic neglect of imaginative possibility. I am choosing to not give a shit about the potential to imagine other stories other lands other people when you watch a movie you don't really experience what the people in the movie are going through but you at least are exposed to it and you have a sense of a world outside your your neighborhood it brings the it brings a concept of the world outside of your immediate little uh loneliness bubble as you put it and that's a beautiful thing that movies can do and then you start to actually think a little bit about the world around you golly gee whiz you know (laughs) who said that was a bad thing and to get all that and to have that platform be taken away for nothing is is a crime against the imagination ultimately it's not even necessary for nothing because we are talking about you know hollywood well not well no we're not talking about hollywood we're talking about all the other films you know no we're gonna just have hollywood now that's a whole nother thing where's the independent cinema and hollywood was all it was already independent cinema doesn't really exist either you know independent cinema is just you with a smartphone recording you know something you know that's we we have all of the means possible to 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 be completely independent of these great you know megalithic corporations these giant uh, uh monopolies in the market but we actually don't have the power to do anything about it so we either accept the fact that we're completely powerless or you know we do something about it and say no we want art that's of a different quality that's mm-hmm. of a different caliber that that comes from a different kind of mode of production yeah in a different world a different way of thinking and honestly i can understand i say this in the piece too and i think this is also part of the issue i can understand that people would rather see batman fight superman than watch uh some sad silent french movie from the 30s i get that it's something that's a little foreign a little weird to people but the thing is is that like it's not it's something that people can appreciate if they're exposed to it and it can be presented in a way that shows how exciting and, and interesting and sexy and funny all that cinema can be, right? Otherwise, it's just, I don't know, it's got subtitles that weirds me out, that turns me off as a consumer. Yeah, I don't want to have to read when I'm watching a film. Yeah, it's in black and white. I don't know if I can handle that. And then it's like, well, you can't if you never try. And then maybe you can actually watch something in black and white that's incredibly fun and exciting. And there's a million movies like that. And so that whole potential just goes right out the right out the, the door to the point where people can only consume what other people are presenting to them because they literally can't imagine consuming anything other than Netflix, right? Or Hulu or HBO or whatever. And I watch Netflix, Hulu, and HBO. I definitely watch those. I think there's room for both. It's just to totally reject and to throw away that potential for something other than that which will by the way revitalize film culture because you're interested in making movies you're interested in being a director you watch something by Fellini you go oh my goodness I never thought about film that way before and then you apply that to your own art your own thinking your own your own imagination it's not where you like a dart set it's not where you take things from it's where you take them to so if we start to be, and, and all the TV, I didn't get to say this in the piece, but I really wanted to, all the TV that people are talking about is blue chip TV, right? All the shows that change the game, your Breaking Bads, your Sopranos, your Wires, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you think those guys got all their inspirations from? David Chase from The Sopranos was openly saying the history of European art cinema blew my mind completely. And when you watch The Sopranos, there's surrealism, there's all these dreamscapes, you know, there's this dark humor, there's all the symbolism. It's, it's, it's literary in a lot of ways. And so you throw that out, then your film culture and your art culture will decrease as a result in quality. A book called Difficult Men, I forgot who wrote it, it was about the TV um, revolution with Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men and all that. You know, and the point was being made that HBO had no idea how to think about The Sopranos. They wanted them to call it Jersey Blood. That was their idea of what the show should be called. They were like, oh, this will be another gangster gangster show. That's fine. We can handle that. We know how to market that. And Chase had to fight tooth and nail to say no. Like, we're going to have some scenes where, like, stuff doesn't make sense. We're going to have some weird, surreal dream sequences. We're going to do some stuff that mixes it up a little bit. And HBO fought it tooth and nail until the public finally caught onto it and said, wow, this is really interesting. And then suddenly HBO is winning all these awards and they're like, well, I really think they're now they're all like, I really think there's a place for artsy TV. Golly, you know, I'm really glad we were so pioneering. And that's the whole thing about we go back again to niche markets. Niche markets are niche until people start to catch on. 
And then, oh my goodness, this really has something interesting to say. And um, the fact that that's getting thrown away for bean counting for nothing is, uh, well, it's, well, it burns my bacon is what it does. So Walter Benjamin, in the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, this is not only an increasing, uh, this is right at the beginning of it because I don't read very far into documents these days. Capitalism brings not a, on not only an increasingly harsh exploitation of the proletariat, but ultimately the creation of conditions which could make it possible for capitalism to abolish itself. That's Benjamin paraphrasing Marx there. So if we have the increasingly harsh exploitation of the proletariat, that's us not being able to watch Filmstruck. And then you have the uh, conditions to make it possible for capitalism to abolish itself. That's the fact that we can already get every single movie that Filmstruck offered absolutely free. Because the, cause capitalism, or not even capitalism, the U.S. military invented the internet and then we all decided to use it. And so then we can already you know, pull the rug out from underneath it and, you know, you have all the great art that you want, but then, you know, everybody that says, well, you're going to pay for it and, you know, nobody's going to do it anymore. So that's why you need the welfare state. But anyway, the point here though, is that here's where you get into the danger. And I think he's kind of, Benjamin, that is, is kind of onto something here. Theses defining the developmental tendencies of art can therefore contribute to the political struggle in ways that it would be a mistake to underestimate. They neutralize a number of traditional concepts, such as creativity and genius, eternal value and mystery, which used in an uncontrolled way, and controlling them is difficult today, allow factual material to be manipulated in the interests of fascism. In what follows, the concepts which are introduced into the theory of art differ from those now current in that they are completely useless for the purposes of fascism. On the other hand, they are useful for the formulation of revolutionary demands in the politics of art. Now, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but uh, a lot of people are freaking out about fascism in the U.S. Mm -hmm. these days. Yeah. Uh, we had the shooting in Pittsburgh at, I think it was Tree of Life Synagogue. Mm -hmm. We had uh, a number of other instances of just pure and wretched hate recently. Mm -hmm. The bombs. The, the Yeah, the bombs. Yeah. And we also have the continued consolidation of the propaganda machine. So make yourself completely useless to the purposes of fascism if you're going to make a movie. You know, if you're going to make a movie, even if it's Thor or Batman versus Superman or some other, you know, superhero thing or whatever, make yourself completely useless to to the people that are that are financing this stuff. Do everything you possibly can from within if you can. You know, Tarkovsky had to make films in a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. He still made incredible films. It didn't work out for him very well. You what know, happened to him? He just lived a he died, I think, of lung cancer in the 80s or something like that. Uh -huh. He just wasn't able to make movies after a certain point. Oh, really? You know? Because the Soviet Union, Union said no? Uh, yeah. The censors were like, we, we don't want to deal with this, pretty much. We know that you're an incredible filmmaker. We know you're probably the best. And then I think somebody uh, said... Uh, one doesn't kill Tolstoy or something like that. Or mm. One doesn't kill Dostoevsky. I can't remember who he, who he gets compared to. Mm. But so they just... They just let him wither. They just banned him from making movies. I don't know if he even got banned. Uh -huh. I should look into this though. They they basically just it's it's what they do here in the U.S. too. When you get to a certain point, and you know the um, you know a Star Is Born just got remade again, mm -hmm. and uh, everybody seems to think it's the best one. I, I don't know if everybody does, but I think the Judy Garland one is a lot more powerful because mm -hmm. I buy judy garland as as the character much more than lady gaga yeah lady gaga talks about you know celebrity and all this kind of stuff but and how it destroys her and it's not real and it's horrible but then she does like bud light commercials afterwards judy garland got mm. killed she was murdered by the the the, the fame monster the fame monster alcoholic right pill alcohol pills she was mm -hmm. dead and she was actually killed by it and mm. you know yeah she's not the one that ends up dead at the end of the movie spoiler alerts <laughs> well the guy who's famous is the one that ends up well he becomes up. less famous james mason right yeah and judy garland's one that lives on but you see what she goes through and she dies like internally because she loves it and she wants it and and because james mason loves her too you know absolutely and sincerely he's just messed up and and then when you when you look back at it see this is the other thing if you don't know the history of cinema, if you don't know what happened to Judy Garland, you think she's just, you know, no place like home, and that's the end of it. It's funny. I, I mentioned that to somebody the other day, and I was like, oh, yeah, Judy Garland ended up rough. And they were like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? I thought she was Dorothy. I was like, oh, she was Dorothy, all she right. She was Dorothy. And then she was, at the bottle of a, she was at the bottom of a bottle of vodka for like 10 years or whatever. Shirley Temple was, you know, mm -hmm. monkeys and rabbits 
in the, the animal crackers and the loop de loops and the soups and all that kind of stuff. And then and then she's trying to suck Cary Grant's dick in a movie. Like Come again? <laughs> baby the baby in the Bobby Soxy. Oh. Or no, sorry, the Bachelor in the Bobby Soxy didn't really? see that one? No, yes. Yeah. She's oh. like um it's like Judy Garland. She was like just eighteen and they turned her into Dorothy. I mean she wasn't really a sex symbol in that one, but you know, she was supposed to she's an adult woman who's playing a child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh uh you know, people get freak out nowadays about, you know, when they sexualize people like Miley Cyrus and Lindsay Lohan and mm-hmm. uh, Selena Gomez, you know, as these Disney kids. And then there's like, oh, they're going to turn them into sex objects. They've been doing it since Shirley Temple. Oh, since forever. You Actually, know? it's funny you say that. Um, Graham Greene uh, was a film critic for a little while. And he was basically like ran out of town on a rail for suggesting that um, uh, um, Shirley Temple, part of the reason she was popular was because of her um, like perverse sex appeal for people. He didn't say it for himself. He meant he thought other people were uh, sexualizing her too much. Yeah, as a child, oh, he thought right. she was her her sexualization was part of her appeal. He thought to the mass audience, and England was like, and and just ran him out of town. And lo and behold, Hollywood's filled with fucking perverts. Right. So right. I guess what can we do now? We can so you can I go watch Mubi. You can you can use yeah. Mubi if you want, which again is a weird concept. They 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 have a film on there. It's curated and it's independent cinema. It's it's weird stuff. It's good movies, all that kind of stuff. And uh, but they have a countdown on it, so you have thirty days to watch it, and then a film drops off, and they add another one. They do series, and again though, it's it's kind of neoliberal, where it's this manufactured scarcity that doesn't actually exist. You can watch all of these movies somewhere on the internet for free. And yet, you know, we have this curation device of movie, Mubi, M-U-B-I, where, you know, they say, you only have this much time to watch it. Watch, act now, you know, <laughs> call in the next five minutes and you can watch this four and a half hour long independent film. Uh, and what else is Fandor? And uh, I guess that's about it. So, yeah. Just, uh, just, just keep an eye out there. Read some Walter Benjamin. So we're back. Matt's now going to talk a little bit about a piece that's up on the fuse right now by Monica Heilman. It's a book review of a book called The Fifth Risk. I think there's a subtitle to it, but I don't have that written down here. Do you? Anywhere? I don't. No? Okay. Anyway, it's by um, it's by Michael Lewis. He wrote Moneyball and The Big Short. The Fifth Risk is a book about the importance of... This is really going to madden the the right wingers the importance of the bureaucracy we're sorry right wingers all that red tape what is it for that red tape apparently they're doing things like uh protecting us from poison except for in flint and a number of other Mm -hmm. places around the world except for when they don't except for when they don't and a bunch of other stuff 
So uh, Monica Heinlein wrote a great review about Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, that Matt's going to talk about. In order to understand just how disastrous, disastrous it is to do without dedicated people, well-versed in the tasks they oversee, Lewis explores the nature of those tasks, and meaning like the, ta- the task of running government organizations. In The Fifth Risk, we meet a few former administrators, intelligent, highly qualified people who understand and care about the real effects government policies have on people's lives. Whether it is protecting us from airborne illnesses, radioactive contamination, terrorist attacks, or lethal hurricanes, their efforts often resolve around keeping us safe. The fifth risk of the title is the danger that's not predictable, and for that reason, it may be the most dangerous. Lewis's special talent is to show us where big ideas intersect with everyday life, a connection made here by the people he interviews. People such as Kevin Concanon, who was once in charge of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's food stamp and school lunch program. A member of a large working-class family, Concanon had a brother who suffered from schizophrenia. The help the family received from the Veterans Administration later drew him to public service. Under President Obama, the school lunch program's nutritional requirements were improved standards which are now, under pressure from lobbyists, being rolled back. Given the number of wildfires in recent years, perhaps the most attention-grabbing work the government does is that of the Forestry Service, part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The USDA also does research to improve milk and crop production, meat inspection, and is credited with preventing a catastrophic outbreak of bird flu in 2015. Rural development is also part of the USDA. It gives... Gave, she says in parentheses, it seems to have been eliminated from the government's organizational chart. It gives loans and grants to small-town projects. Emblematic of the federal government's problem is the reluctance recipients have in acknowledging that aid. One former USDA employee confesses that it was not uncommon for a small-town mayor to request that the government's name not appear on the big ceremonial check. Government agencies do not advertise their considerable accomplishments. That is tragically unfortunate for the American public and for the people who work at these agencies. Ultimately, it degrades respect for public service. One of the book's most insightful observations comes from Kathy Sullivan, formerly employed at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association. Quote, The sense of identity as a citizen has been replaced by consumer. There is a, quote, profound ignorance about what government does and a lack of involvement that inevitably follows. So this ties really well, actually, into what we were just talking about, because we we mentioned that we were we were essentially behaving as as intended. We were being the consumer of the thing that we wanted when it came to the the, the particular streaming service that we were into. Right. And because we actually don't have any sovereignty as citizens, it seems <laughs> that our our behavior as consumers is nonsense. And this is why I've always been weary of any sort of critique that necessarily equates our our ethics and our morality and our our, our values as a, as a country to our consumer activity. I don't like voting with my money. I don't think it's a a, mm-hmm. a a practical way of actually doing politics. But yeah, we're not we're not meant to think or to participate or to even value service. We're supposed to buy into the idea of service. The idea the identity of citizen has been replaced by consumer, right? A citizen's supposed to be somebody who's a part of a, who's a part of something bigger than themselves and who pays attention to the way that the government and, and society around them functions. And if it's a consumer, it's just what's in it for me, always. And what's so ironic to me, and why I really liked this review and I was really interested in the, the concepts that this book's talking about, is the sense that it's like, so if it's replaced by consumerism, then like, why is it that people are getting checks, right? Why do the small town mayors ask the government's name not be on the giant check they just brought back, right? So it's don't act like being a consumer is the end-all be-all for human experience or even your experience of being an American and then come crying to a government agency to give you money that you need to survive or to ward off bird flu or to help you out when a hurricane hits. Um, There's a part where she says, as the name implies... Um, I'm sorry, all all the weather forecasts, this is uh, Monica Heilman speaking in her review, all the weather forecasts we consult daily are based on the National Weather Service, whose data depends on citizen volunteers, weather balloons, buoys, ships at sea, and satellites. Citizen volunteers! This is still how we, like, count birds and stuff, too. Sure, yeah. People who actually say, this is interesting to me, and I want to help people out to know about this. 
A particularly satisfying part of Lewis's book is his exploration of how the data is put together to make forecasts. As the name implies, the National Weather Service, under the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is a government resource. Imagine if it was privatized. That was tried by Barry Myers, Trump's pick to head the, NONA, the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, with the help of former Senator Rick Santorum. Myers is the CEO of AccuWeather, a for-profit business that charges for its repackaging of National Weather Service information. So the government does the work. We just come up with a snappy website and give the platform out, and then we'll profit off of that. Yeah, this is, this is how businessmen operate. If somebody else is going to do it for you and you can find a way to, to make money off of uh, the backs of the taxpayers, go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, fuck right. it. Fuck them. Mm-hmm. You know they need. Why me. do why do we care? This and is then uh, everybody's, and then on the t- the taxpayers are thinking of themselves as consumers and not people who are a part of some larger f- uh, structure that's important and that they have a role in. Then it's just like oh I'll just buy my weather access today, right? Or just look out the window, right? But, <laughs> right. Uh, I I I think this is an. I haven't read the book. I don't know if you read the book. No. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that. There's a lot of stuff that can be essentially nationalized, and that's not a bad thing. Right. That we need them to be. You always use the phrase the stuff that we can't walk away from healthcare, yeah. housing, education. If I can choose food to buy coffee at the place two, two blocks from me, then okay. If I can choose to go without coffee, then no big deal. But if it's something I need, I can't let the market just, just be my only supplier for that. Because right. otherwise they'll be like, well, you need it, so I'll charge you whatever the hell I feel like for yeah. it, and you're not going to go anywhere. Or we won't give it to you until you know you, you, you sell your soul to us or something like that. Yeah. Well, look at healthcare. Yeah. I mean, like the EpiPen that was owned by uh, whoever, by the oh, Martin yeah, yeah. Shkreli guy. Yeah, because, because we're the ones that own it. We'll charge, we'll yeah. double the price. It's Who now cost $700. And they were like, are you going to lower the price? And he's like, no. He owns it. Why should he? Right. Right. And it, and if you're just a consumer anyway, then like tough luck, little shaver. You know, he's not even in jail for um, attempting to. He's in jail. He's not in jail for trying to kill uh, kids with allergies. He's in jail for some other like tax evasion, mismanaging someone else's investment money. Right. I believe. Yeah. That's what you. That's what. And and rare that somebody even goes to prison for that. Mm-hmm. I think it was because his reputation was so bad that somebody decided to make an example of him or something. But he doesn't even go to prison for trying to, to, to leverage his, the fact that he has a monopoly on EpiPens and that kids are going to die if they get stung by bees because they can't afford an EpiPen. Right. Which should be something that should be available. Not And not just something that it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I own it, so you know, can't stop me from trying to make money. Here's the other thing, though. There mm-hmm. are these you know, teat-sucking career bureaucrats, though, too. Sure. That do jack shit. Sure. And they don't. So I think like this review is good. And I think it's necessary that we begin to think of ourselves as, you know, part of the polis, as as these people that are part of something larger, as the necessary services that we actually depend on that the government does. And the fact that we don't if we don't notice them, that to me is actually a good thing. Mm. You know, if I don't need the government until I realize that some shit's got really fucked up and mm-hmm. the government is the only thing that's going to actually help me, mm-hmm. then I think the government's doing it jo- its job. Most of the time, it should yeah. just you know, stay it's out of people. It's the janitor pe- thing. It's yeah. the nobody notices you until you screw up. Right. You know, stay out of people's you know, personal lives, and then, you know, and then mm-hmm. when, when something bad happens, you know, step up because right. you're, the, you're the people that can do it. Right. Other thing here, though, she mentions like when a hurricane hits, we distribute those things differently through our federal resources. FEMA can show up to... One part of New Orleans, but not another one during Katrina. FEMA can show up to Houston, you know, after a hurricane mm-hmm. and help particular neighborhoods. Puerto Rico can go fuck itself, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And that has a lot to do with, you know, who's in charge of the administration. Uh, but it, it doesn't even, it, it's not that different, though. You know, this this happens under all kinds of administrations where, where these government resources are deployed inequitably and with some kind of even if it's not political there's always a it's always going to be interpreted as political right so if they're going to be there they have to be better you know i'm i'm i don't know if i'm entirely sold on on michael lewis's pitch here because i see the government under every kind of administration stepping back from a lot of its necessary roles you know i as somebody who taught or substitute taught in a public school system for uh, just short, shy of a couple of years during the Obama administration in a wealthy 
uh, northeast progressive city, the school lunches suck. Hmm. You know, we can talk all we want about the the, the regulations that uh, Concanon put. They suck. You you wouldn't want to come within ten feet of some of the lunches that I saw. And mm-hmm. this is in you know a progressive school system mm-hmm. that spends as much money as it possibly can. So I don't want to be oversold on this stuff. But the point the point is well taken that you know we we're not meant to participate in any other way other than as consumers. Mm-hmm. And I just read in the Financial Times today. Uh, business analysis and analysts or, or business leaders are saying yeah you know that we have to you know uh, uh we have tariffs and stuff that we have to deal with now but we can't do it. we can solve all that with pricing and we've been able to do that it just ends up being a tax on the consumer right this is this is the inevitable you know fallout right from all of the things that say you guys let the, the market do everything that it wants let the government do nothing but enable the market and that's the ideology on both sides of the aisle right now let the government allow the market to decide for us to decide for you go to chicago and you look at how many schools Rahm Emanuel shut down mm-hmm. and that's barack obama's boy you know there's no it doesn't matter how good the uh public school food standards are Rahm Emanuel shut down all the public schools yep so going back to monica heilman's article she says in the end quote whether through disregard willful ignorance or strategic elimination which is all of what we're just talking about now, Lewis gives us a glimpse of how parts of the government are being hollowed out. Mostly, it is a fascinating, illuminating, and at times jaw-dropping, the book is, and full of things we should, we should know about. So that was the review in, uh, in The Fuse recently. It's still up, I think, right now, actually, on the, on the front page of the book section, uh, courtesy of Monica Heilman. So good on her for reviewing something that's clearly very timely and um, very important. Received a letter that my man was dying. I received a letter that my man was dying. I caught a plane. Went home flying. When I got there, folks had gathered around. When I got there, folks had gathered around. His eyes was set and his face was full of frowns. He was undead, but he was slowly dying. He was undead, but this is a review of a new film called Free Solo. The title is Mountain Masterpiece, written by Jay Atkinson. Even in documentary films, a nonfiction story is often refashioned, reshaped, and repurposed, scene by scene, with an eye towards the satisfying rigors of the narrative arc. The camera doesn't see everything. It sees the right things in order to build up sympathy or enmity for the protagonist. But free solo filmmakers Elizabeth Chai Vassarheli and Jimmy Chin didn't require as much rearranging as most producers to create the rising action in their new film. This tense, engaging, brilliantly photographed cliffhanger depicts world-class rock climber Alex Honnold's attempt to free solo, climb without ropes or safety harness, the treacherous 3,000-foot Dawn Wall of El Capitan in California's Yosemite National Park. In traditional narrative, the protagonist and antagonist face off, with one prevailing over the other. Honnold's creative problem-solving, dedicated training, and single-minded focus give Varsarheli and Shin Chin the perfect subject and the ideal adversary to demonstrate the lasting value of a great story. More than once, Honnold, 32, a confident, almost detached fellow, 
says that he's a warrior, although his manner reflects the peaceful interiority of a great dancer or jazz musician. Through his meticulous preparation, as well as the climber's meditative approach to the challenges and dangers of the task before him, Honold embodies Ernest Hemingway's dictum of grace under pressure more convincingly than any Hollywood movie star ever dreamed of. Honold's quest, the culmination of many dangerous, difficult, and strenuous ascents, is the perfect embodiment of four types of narrative conflict. Man versus man, man versus himself, man versus nature, and man versus society. A quiet, existential hero, Honold's personality seems to consist mainly of his iron resolve to solo El Cap. Although he has honed his climbing technique to a razor-sharp and balletic style that makes it appear he is flowing up the rock, defying gravity and physics, his biggest obstacle is an internal one. If he makes a single, quarter-inch mistake, he will fall to his death. One of the most intriguing parts of Free Solo is Honold's zen-like effort to conquer his fear, stepping outside it, as he says. El Cap is massive, monumental, a giant tombstone for all the daring and dead adventurers who have failed there. The wall is frighteningly smooth for many long stretches, dimpled with treacherous overhangs and dark, ominous cracks and fissures. It looms up, primordial, unconquered, terrifying. Nature, red in tooth and claw, or perhaps an embodiment of the fifth type of narrative conflict, man versus God. Trying to free-climb such an Old Testament monolith can be viewed as an insult to its maker. Honold faces all these difficulties while eschewing social conventions. He wears the same shirt nearly every day, living in his van near the base of the rock, and eating his meals straight from the frying pan. During a visit to his old high school, he admits that he often got in trouble for climbing onto the school's roof. When a grinning teenager asks how much money he makes, Honold says that he lived on a shoestring for years, though corporate sponsorships now provide an income equivalent to a, quote, moderately successful dentist. Brusque and charismatic, Honold prepares for his star turn by occasionally using ropes and a harness, mapping out possible routes one pitch at a time, and dogged by cameras that sometimes intrude on his planning and his mood. At one point, he abandons a first attempt at the solo. It felt like he was performing for the cameras. In a telling sequence, one of his friends, also a world-class free climber, congratulates Honold for walking away from the climb. He even says there's no shame in abandoning the feat altogether. But Honold assures him that it wasn't the right day. He's going to try it. Throughout the film, Honold takes a low-key DIY approach to a feat that may, or may not, result in the greatest achievement in the history of his sport. It's fair to say that soloing El Cap is equal to, or greater than, Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile, or Boston Red Sox outfielder Ted Williams batting 400. As Honold observes, if he solos El Cap, it's like winning a gold medal in the Olympics. But there's no second or third place. If he fails, he dies. Jimmy Chin and Elizabeth Chai Vericelli make another wise move. I'm being serious here. By remaking Howard Hawks' 1939 film Only Angels Have Wings. In that movie, Hawks, a former aviator and race car driver, created a dark, atmospheric thriller about a fictional airline in the early days of commercial flying. Cary Grant, playing against type, stars as the ace pilot and manager, responsible for a motley crew of flyers and a yard full of bulky, balsa wood planes. Charged with flying the mail over the Andes Mountains in the years following the Great War, he's relentless often going with little or no sleep and sending both himself and his friends on increasingly dangerous missions. When a popular, popular young pirate when a popular young pilot is killed in a botched landing, a vacationing showgirl played by Jean Arthur is horrified when the other aviators go on drinking and carousing right after the crash. When Arthur scolds the group because their friend Joe is dead, each aviator in turn asks, Who's Joe? Grant, obviously a surrogate for the dashing Hawks, explains that Joe died because he wasn't good enough. He failed because he lacked the right combination of airborne athleticism merged with that certain something, an ineffable quality that makes some individuals wilt and others thrive in perilous situations. In Free Solo, Honold plays the Grant character, likable, charming, but essentially inscrutable. 
Just like coal miners, cops, firefighters, and soldiers, people die frequently in Honnold's line of work, many of them his close friends. Several of these climbers are shown in photo montage, free-spirited and smiling young men who felt the same way about soloing as Honnold does. Each climb might be my last. But Honnold accepts the dangers and the losses, some of them deeply personal, and moves on, just like Grant in Only Angels Have Wings. If you're familiar with Hawks' oeuvre and Only Angels Have Wings in particular, the parallels are striking. Complicating things at the airfield, Rita Hayworth, Grant's old flame, arrives on the scene with her new husband, a previously disgraced pilot looking for a job. Like Hayworth, Arthur has set her cap for Grant, despite his best friend's warning that she should stay away from him. In Free Solo, Honnold's girlfriend, Sandy McCandless, is a smart, thoughtful young woman, plays the Jean Arthur character, even though she's even more lovely, luminous, and innocent than Arthur, a sought-after leading lady in the 30s. As the couple grows closer, you can see McCandless trying, subtly at first, and then more forcefully, to convince Honnold to choose their relationship over his passion for free soloing. As much as anything, free solo is a love story. McCandless loves Honnold and he loves her, though not as much as he loves climbing. In a scene that could have been lifted straight from Jules Firthman's screenplay for Only Angels Have Wings, Honnold sits behind McCandless, listening, in, listening impassively, as she finally asks if he'll choose soloing El Chap over her. His reply is both touching and chilling. He would be sad if she left him, but he can always find another relationship. In a telling interview with Honnold's mother, Deirdre, who admits she was a distant, sometimes cold parent, we learn that Alex's late father, Charles, who introduced his son to climbing, was probably on the autism spectrum, though undiagnosed. Suddenly, Honnold's plain-spoken manner and implacability begin to make sense. High-functioning autistic people are often extremely intelligent, focused on a single field of expertise, and unable to read certain social cues. To his credit, Honnold has made an effort to share more of his feelings with McCandless. When she opens up to him, he makes it clear that he's going to free-climb El Cap anyway. You see something stirring in his eyes. Earlier, he'd said, Nothing good in the world happens when you're happy and cozy. It's about being a warrior. But when McCandless bears her soul, Honnold, in a heart-rending gesture, leans over and thanks McCandless for her concern. On June 3rd, 2017, Alex Honnold woke up and decided he was ready to solo El Cap. Previously, he told the camera he wasn't going to let McCandless know in advance of his attempt. Earlier in the film, he'd informed her, When you say be safer, I can't. Only Chin and his crew and a few climbing friends, know what Honnold is doing. After Honnold's mild complaint, Chin and his team of rock-climbing cinematographers backed off a little, using a combination of drone photography, tiny cameras planted along Honnold's route, and others operated by cinematographer climbers in harness. As Honnold begins climbing, an astonishingly, astonishingly unimpressive figure, armed only with a pair of climbing shoes and a bag of chalk, one of his friends down below remarks that despite his reputation and talent, people who really know climbing are freaked out by news of this attempt. Only one moment in the film seems inauthentic, a gesture towards the audience that has a reality TV feel to it. Talking to the camera, Chin looks sad and serious, noting that he's conflicted about shooting Honnold solo on El Cap. But there's never any doubt that he's going to make this movie, and the scene could have been cut without sacrificing any part of what's at stake for Honnold and his loved ones. Watching Honnold ascend, sometimes weaving back and forth across the rock face, and other times worming his way up a long, vertical crack, two things sprang to mind. I can't believe he's not using a rope, and it looks easy and improvised, but it's really years of practice, mistakes, losses, and setbacks. Earlier in the film, climbing with a rope and accompanied by the camera crew, Honnold attempted to solve the boulder problem a seemingly impossible passage about two-thirds of the way up the rock. First, he tried a karate kick, clinging to a knife edge of rock with one hand, while scissoring his left hand across the chasm and trying to get a foothold. That failed, leading to a short fall, where he dangled from the rope, swinging back and forth. Honnold climbed back up and attempted a different move. This time, he held onto the rock overhead with the fingertips on both hands, swung his body like a pendulum, and leaped away from the rock and sideways, 
trying to find another finger hold on the fly. Again he failed. Now, as he attempted to surmount the same obstacle without a rope and safety harness, one of the cinematographers aimed his camera but looked away, stricken. A moment later, my companion in the theater, an adventurous woman who's no stranger to outdoor challenges, whispered, This is the scariest movie I've ever seen, and one of the most enthralling moments in cinema I've ever seen. Honnold finished his solo climb of El Capitan in three hours, 56 minutes. It was a messy yet flawless effort, like witnessing Van Gogh painting Starry Night or Charlie Parker blowing a mad solo on his saxophone. At the top, surrounded by members of the crew, Honnold did not exult. He sat on the edge of the cliff, his arms hugging his knees. So delighted, he said. A few minutes later, he said it again. That was it. Honnold finished his climb before the sun was high in the sky. Most people would have rushed out for some champagne. But Honnold headed back to see McCandless and to work on his finger strength by using the hangboard in his van. That was Matt Hansen reading from Jay Atkinson's review of the film Free Solo about Holland's solo free solo climb up El Capitan. Thank you for joining us. You can catch us uh, online at artsfuse.org. That's artsfuse.org. You can subscribe on Patreon to help us make this podcast both better as well as help pay for uh, the criticism that you get at the Artsfuse. So for the Artsfuse, this has been Lucas Spiro and Matt Hansen. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. (laughs) 